Good morning. I hope you're doing well. I am really, really, really pumped and excited. Glad you're all here. There's a lot of good things going on this week. Um, so I am super pumped to be here. I've got a paper due tomorrow, which I'm really scared about, but that's all right because four days after that, I have a little party for myself as we go down to Columbia and watch the Gamecocks play football for the first game of the season. So I am super excited about this week. I hope you are too. Um, Welcome to Remedy. My name's John Chambers, by the way. I'm the pastor here. Um, If you're here for a while, you hear people call me FUD. Um, That's not by accident. That's just what my wife calls me. That's what she met me as was FUD a long time ago. Nickname, long story, kind of. But anyway, that's, that's what's going on. Um, you saw up here, we're doing a series called Doctrine. Normally, we study books of the Bible. We've been a church for about four and a half years now, and we've just been going through books of the Bible, Galatians, uh, I can name them, Jonah, Matthew, yada, yada. So we just go through books of the Bible. Um, and the reason why we go through books of the Bible, we have a, a core belief in the Word, um, that the Word is what changes you. It's not, it's not me, it's not whether I'm captivating or engaging. It's the Word. The Word changes you. And so we just take books of the Bible and study them through. Um, We're in the book of Matthew right now. We're like 80 sermons into the book of Matthew, and we'll be starting at chapter 26 right around Easter and lead up into Easter, and we'll finally finish Matthew. But this is a little bit different. This particular fall, we've decided to do something totally different. Instead of taking a book and studying it through, we're we're doing a doctrine series. About four and a half years in, we decided that we would uh, flip it around and do this. And so what we've been doing over the last three weeks is taking a doctrine and studying it, a Christian doctrine. So the first week, Jack, our other elder, started, and he did the doctrine of the Word. And then last week, I um, did the doctrine of the Trinity. I and mean, if you weren't here, you missed it. Every intricacy and mystery of the Trinity was completely explained last week. And so I, everybody that was here actually understands the Trinity fully. Um, and so that's a joke. We got about 12 more sermons that we're going to do. But today is arguably, I think, the most important sermon of the Doctrine series. Today, we're doing the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And so if, the, if you're going to like hit one and that's it, I think this might be the best sermon of the Doctrine series content-wise about who we're talking about and maybe not delivery-wise, but at least the, the, the content-wise um, is the best one, not, maybe the most important. Um, if you're going to talk about Jesus, that's, that is the most important thing and most important reality to talk about. So um, just a couple other housekeeping things and then we're going to get started. Uh, we are, uh, as we're going through and hopefully going to evoke, look at that, they're so heavy. We're going to evoke some, some questions in your head um, that we're not going to be able to talk about in further detail. That's, that's one of maybe the goals that we have. And so as we're doing that, we're hoping that maybe you'll feel compelled to do some further study throughout the week, which is always a good thing because um, you don't have any studying to do right now that school's back in. Um, but uh, so here's, here's the first uh, book. These are all three by the same author, and they're all kind of different levels of, of where you might be spiritually. This is the main book that Jack and I, as we're preaching through this uh, series, are, are using for study. We're using other systematics and other things like that. Um, but this is the main one that we're going through. It's the author's Wayne Grudem. The book is Systematic Theology. It's like 1,500 pages. It's ridiculously long. Um, and if you want to, you know, torture yourself, then grab this and read it. Or it's more of a reference. So if we talk about something and you don't know what it means, you can just go to it um, and find it in that particular chapter and read it. So I invite you to grab this. If there's just no way that you're going to do that whatsoever, that's fine. Then get this one. It's just a kind of the pared down version of that. It's about, I don't know, 600 pages, maybe. Uh, 500, 500 pages. Um, it's that book condensed. And so, uh, 
the 12-year program that we have for elders, they all use this. This is the assigned book. Um, and so maybe Bible Doctrine by Grudem is more your speed. But if not, then Christian beliefs might be more your speed. This is, you know, this is like the Cliff Notes version, if you will, um, which is what I would have done but uh, a long time ago. 20 basics for every Christian should know. It's really fast version. So hopefully, as we're talking through some of these doctrines, you'll want to grab at least one of these three um, and be able to dive into and get some more information about the stuff that we're going to be talking about. We're, we're hopefully going to talk as much as we can and say as much as we can about every doctrine, but we can't do them exhaustively. We can't, we can't understand everything there is to know about it. So um, besides last week when we did it for the Trinity, we, we, we nailed that one. But anyway, um, so what we're going to do is uh, study Jesus today. We're going we're gonna to look at the person of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray before we get started. As we're praying, if you want um, before we, we, we start praying, you can open up to Colossians chapter 1. We're eventually going to get to Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some historical understandings of Jesus, and then we'll get to Colossians chapter 1. So um, let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time that we can come here and study your word. I thank you for this gift that you've given me to be able to um, talk about Jesus the most precious reality in my life and, and really the entire world. I pray that you would help me today to speak with precision. I pray that you'll help me to speak truth. God, all the things that would be helpful in this particular service to say, that you would help me say those things and the ones that wouldn't, or maybe it's things I said last service that wouldn't be helpful for this service, you would keep me from saying those. Fill me with the Spirit. Fill all of us with the Spirit. And God, give us... Um, hearts and minds that can truly start understanding who Christ is, and may we be changed by it. God, that's what we want. That's what we're here for. We want to know Christ more deeply and more intimately so that we can serve him more passionately. Do that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So if there is a sermon that I would over-prepare for, which I think would be a good thing, it would be the sermon on Jesus, and that there's there's no doubt that I have definitely over-prepared for this sermon, and so I have been trying to pare it down, pare it down, pare it down, um, and I've deleted a whole bunch of stuff, and so hopefully it, we're going to fit into the allotted time. We did, because we're meeting right now, last service, so we're going to do that today, um, but if, if you feel like it's too much, it's okay. Like, just come talk to me afterwards, and we'll, we'll uh, explain stuff to you if it's too much, so Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Jesus, and of all the historical figures that's ever lived in the world, no one has been more loved or more hated than Jesus. And I I think that, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, that statement has to be true. If you're going to be consistent with what your belief system is, you either have to love him or hate him. You, You can't do either, you can't kind of be apathetic and indifferent, As a matter of fact, Jesus warns against that in Revelation 3.16. He's writing to the church and he says, I wish that you were neither um, hot nor cold, but I wish that you were not lukewarm. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out out of my mouth. Now, the goal of me, of a pastor preacher, is that you would love Christ. That that's that's what I'm shooting for, is that all of us would be kind of captivated and and brought in together to see the glory of Christ and that we would love him and see him as the most precious reality in all the world. That's that's my goal today. But when you think about Christ historically over the last two thousand years, no one has been more loved or more hated than him. And I should submit to you that we cannot leave here or be indifferent to him. I think that's just completely inconsistent. 
Um, so it's not surprising that since this is true, he is the most famous person in all of human history. Um, leaders, religious leaders rise and fall and, and fade out of, uh, out of existence or fade out of um, knowing who they are. But Jesus, that is not the case. More, so, more songs have been sung to him. More artwork has been created of him. More books have been written about him than any person that has ever lived. Our calendar is based off his life. Um, and so naturally, if this is the case, if he's the most important person in all of human history, then he's going to have fans and he's going to have foes. Now, the information that we get about Jesus comes from all different kinds of places. Whether you are a Christian or not, you've heard it from all kinds of different places, from, from television, from movies, from the History Channel, from Sunday school felt boards whenever you grew up. We've, we've had all kinds of different ways from hearsay, um, which usually that's not true information. So we've heard it from all kinds of, of different places. Um, but the goal today is, instead of trying to think about all those kind of um, secondary places. We want to drive into the primary place, which is his word, and know him today. So the goal here today um, is that after you leave today, that you would know more about Christ. Now, if you hear last week, uh, we talked about the Trinity, and I had several applications. I had five different applications based on our our understanding of the Trinity, how it should inform the way we live. The Trinity's always been in community. Therefore, the most consistent thing that we can do in reflecting the Trinity is that Christians must be in community. If you're not in a Christian community, you don't accurately reflect the Trinity, etc. So, um, but today, there's not really some direct applications in knowing Christ. Here's why. The goal today, the only goal I have, is that you would know Christ more intimately and more deeply. And I just think that if, if I do that, if the Lord would grant that after today that we would know him more intimately and deeply, I don't need to give you an application. I don't need to say, so therefore you should. I'll, here's my example. I use this often, and so forgive me when you've heard this for the hundredth time. Whenever you get married to your spouse um, and some information, some new thing that's just awesome about them is presented to you that you find, to know that you find out that you know more about them the application doesn't have to, somebody hasn't to come and whisper in your ear, therefore, you should love them more now. You should serve them more now. Like, no one has to come and tell you, now that you know this amazing thing about your spouse, now that you should go do this. And so, the same thing, I think, is with Christ. Now that we know something more awesome about Christ, and, and everything about Christ is amazing. There's not like, oh, yeah, okay, I could take that detail, throw it out the window, whatever. Like, it's about Jesus. It's God. So, everything there is to know is amazing. So, therefore... I don't think I need to say, so you should love him more. So you should serve him more. So you should be more humble. So you should, like, I just don't feel like there's application needed for that. If your heart becomes inflamed with love for Jesus, I think you just want to do those things. No one has to tell you. So my goal today then is just that you would know Christ more deeply and intimately. And I think that you'll know what to do. I think the Holy Spirit can handle that. I don't have to, I don't have to do it. So... Uh, in Ephesians 3.19, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. And in, in that particular section in chapter 3 that we're talking about, he's, he's writing a prayer. It starts at verse 14. And he's just writing out a prayer for the Ephesians. And as he's finishing up that prayer, he says that he wants them to know the love of Christ, which is kind of the goal for me today. I want you to know Christ, know how much he loves you, know all the things that there are. But when he's writing that, he doesn't say, I want you to just know the love of Christ for no purpose whatsoever. He wants them to know the love of Christ, and he says it right after that, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
So the goal in me wanting you to know more about Jesus is so that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And here's the possible tragedy. This is the possible tragedy that week in and week out when you come to this church or any church that you find yourself being filled and filled and filled with more information. But instead, um, but as you're doing that, you're missing the entire point that the goal is not just to be filled with information, but also to be filled with all the fullness of God. It's love that surpasses knowledge. So we have to have the knowledge, but the love that, that we need to be filled with surpasses knowledge. It's based on that. And then that we would know Christ more intimately and want to serve him with our entire lives. So here's, here's my goal then. Based on that, it means that you must, when you hear these things about Jesus, the only right response is that you must seek him with a burning intensity that can never be satisfied with worldly things, but only find its full satisfaction whenever it's found in Christ. So that's my goal today, is to tell you some things about Christ so that you would find a forest fire coming up in your heart that it can only be satisfied in knowing Christ and enjoying Christ and be amazed that he would go to the cross for us. So there's lots of ways that this can happen. It can come through feasting and fasting and deep prayer and making war on sin. But the, goal, the way that we're going to try to do it this particular morning is learning as much as we can about the person of Jesus and that he would use that today to uh, bring us into a deeper love for him. Now, here comes a little section of some, some historical stuff and then we'll get into Colossians. So on our church website, we have uh, a pretty traditional statement about Jesus um, and our beliefs in our church website. This is what it says that we believe about Jesus. We got this from Bethlehem Baptist Church, which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It says, we believe in Jesus Christ who got it from, you know, all the way back to the first century. So we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We believe in his virgin birth, sinless life, miracles and teachings. We believe in his substitutionary atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, perpetual intercession for his people, by the way, which is amazing. Think about that. Jesus is never endingly for his people, interceding at the right hand of the Father for every single one of his children forever. That's an amazing picture of love. I mean, (laughs) amazing. And personal, visible return to earth. We talked about that when we were in Matthew. But Jesus is coming back and we're actually going to get to see him. It's going to be like lightning all over the earth when he returns. It is a huge return. Um, So we believe all of these particular things. So what I want to do in the next five minutes or so is explain some of the things that are said in that to help us understand the importance of almost all of those pieces. So if we want to take all that and kind of summarize it into a short little essential statement, this won't be on the, on the screen, but if we want to summarize all that, it's this. We believe Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Just a sim- simple little statement. We believe Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So last week when we were talking about the Trinity, we said that we believe in one God, one essence, and three persons. Now we're taking that second person of the Trinity and we're saying that we believe he's one person made up of two natures. 
100% God and 100% man. So we believe that Jesus is 100% God, fully man, that's one nature, and 100% man, that's the other nature, and that he's still one person, and he will be this 100% God, 100% man forever. He'll be that forever. Um, I had the, ca- the Chalcedon statement in 451 I was going to quote, but I don't have time. Um, so anyway, what I want to do today, or what I want to do right now, is to explain just a couple things for you, because um, you've probably heard this growing up. Whenever you, Maybe you're in youth group, you had a good youth minister that taught you who Jesus was, um, and he talked, about 100%, he talked to you about Jesus, and he, you'd hear statements like 100% God, 100% man, and maybe you've never understood what's the absolute need for that. Why is it that we have to say 100% God, 100% man? Why is that important to understand and affirm as Christians? So what I want to do here is just give you a, a couple reasons why that's important, and then we'll address the heresies. We're not going to be much long, very long on the heresies, I mean, who's got time for heresies? We ain't got time for that up in here. So we want to we just talk about the heresies for a short amount of time. They're crazy words, and the words don't even matter. It's just that they don't understand this big concept of, of who Christ is. So here's the importance of humanity. Why is it important that Jesus is 100% man? Just a few reasons. Um, it helps us understand the virgin birth. Uh, the virgin birth, we believe that he's 100% man, that he was actually conceived of the Holy Spirit, but still born of the Virgin Mary, and that whenever he came, he was born, because he's of the Virgin Mary, he's still 100% man. But when we're talking about the virgin birth, we have to understand that he had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. He couldn't have come from a man and a woman, or else, when, if that was the case, he would have been born in sin. So the reason why he, we have to say we affirm the virgin birth is because his sinlessness is preserved. Let me explain to you. So way back here, on this side of the stage, it's always creation. So on this side of the stage is creation. You have Adam and Eve walking around in the garden, sinless, nothing's going on. One rule, don't eat a tree. Like, don't eat the fruit of the tree. One rule, and they break it. And so Eve goes up and is her, you know, passive husband standing there like, I wonder what's going on. She's just eating it. So anyway, that's another rabbit trail. So there they are. Um, and as soon as they eat the fruit, as soon as they eat the fruit of the tree, you know, it's an apple, you think, but I don't think so. Um, so, um, or else, never mind. So you got this, <laughs> you've got this fruit of the tree. And as soon as that happens, all of a sudden, every person that's born in the line of Adam is now born with a corrupt human nature. We, we believe that sin entered the world at that particular moment. And every person that's in the line of Adam now is born with a corrupt human nature. Therefore, down the road, whenever Christ was born, if he was fathered by a man, then he, Jesus would have been born with a corrupt human nature. And he would not be sinless. And he would not be the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And so we have to say that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary. And she gave birth to someone who was 100% man still, but by a virgin, because um, it, she, he couldn't have been fathered by someone born in the line of Adam, or else he would have been born into sin, and that's not a perfect sacrifice for us. Um, so that's the first thing. The next thing is the atonement. He has to be 100% man um, to be able to properly atone for our sins. In other words, to make it really simple, um, God couldn't have come as a horse and lived a perfect life and a horse be killed on the cross in order to save man. It it had to have been a man. He couldn't have come as anything else. So certainly, well, um, Hebrews 2, I've got to stay focused here. 
Um, so he had to become as a man. The reason why, one of the verses that we know that's, from, that's the case from is Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps. He didn't come to save angels or anything else. He came to save man. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It just means, another way to say, he came to save man. Not angels or anything else. And so since he came to save man, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, like man, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And here it is. He had to be made man in order to save man in order right here in the very end of 17 to make, big word, propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to be made man in order to make propitiation. In other words, that's just a big word for saying the wrath absorber of God. Whenever God poured out all of his righteous anger on Jesus on the cross, the only person that, the only one that could have done that should be a human. Like there's no reason for it to be anybody else. It had to be a human. That's why Jesus became man. But he wasn't just like us a man. He was the perfect man. So he was the perfect and only person that, it could, that could absorb all the righteous anger that God had on us for our sin. So it's absolutely, absolutely important that Jesus in the atonement was human, that he became a human in order to save us. The, the old historical church history ways of saying it was he had to become that which he wanted to save. That's just the way they used to say he had to become that which he wanted to save. So he wanted to save man, so he became man. Hebrews 2 tells us that. Another thing about the importance of his humanity, and this is, this is awesome, is that whenever the incarnation happened, that's whenever he became man, 2,000 years ago. Before that, he was um, just the second person to the Trinity, God of Spirit, you couldn't see him. And 2,000 years ago, he entered into human history, became a man as a baby, and grew as a man. And then whenever he died on the cross, this gets a little bit crazy. So he's 100% man and 100% God. Um, His man, his 100% human nature died, but the 100% God nature did not die. Uh, but then he was resurrected. The power of God, 100% part of God, raised him from, the lo- from dead. And now he lives in heaven, this is the most important part, as still a human. It wasn't like after he, after he died, he existed, he, he you know, stopped being a human, and now he's back to being the invisible God that we can't see. So here's the best part about this, is he will be a man forever. When we get to heaven... We can't see God the Father. We can't see God the Spirit. But we can see Jesus. So when we get to heaven, and I think this is just awesome. Like, we're visual people. We like to see. God has made a way that when we get to heaven, we can visually lay eyes on Jesus, our Savior, our God, and be able to finally, in some capacities, with some of our senses, take in the glory of God in some ways that we can know that who God is and see that's our Savior. That's God, the one that's been existing from eternity past. We worship him. So he's always going to be a man forever. He didn't temporarily become a man, and then his, um, but instead he's always and will always be now a man, forever fulfilling the office of prophet, priest, and king in heaven, as we saw interceding at the right hand of the Father forever. The next one is the importance of deity. Um, why is it important that we say Jesus is 100% God? Just a couple things decently fast. Number one, it's all over the scriptures. Like all over the scriptures, Jesus claims to be God. So it's important that he be God because he said he was God. 
all over the scriptures, and we believe this to be the word of God. So if it says that he's God, and we believe this to be the word of God, it's just important that he's God, if that makes sense. The next one is this. Um, not only is it necessary for him to be human, he had to become that which he wanted to save. Not only is it important that he's human, but it's also important that he's 100% God in the atonement. Here's why. Um, only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of those who would believe in him. So if someone of us tried to get on the cross and absorb all the wrath of God for mankind, we wouldn't be able to do it. Only the infinite can absorb the full wrath of the infinite and really, truly atone for sins. So it has to be also not only that Jesus is 100% man, he had to become that which he wanted to save, but also that he's 100% God because only the, the infinite could absorb the righteous wrath of the infinite. So he's one person made up of two natures, 100% God and 100% man. It's important that we understand both of those. Now, we don't have too much time for the heresies, but all the heresies basically come from a misunderstanding of that. It's just they, they emphasize one over the other or they get it wrong. So we say that he's one person, Two natures, and both natures are 100% God and 100% man completely. And so you have people who, when they get them wrong, these names aren't important. Don't write down these names. It's just they get them wrong. So there's one called the Arians where they say he's 100% man, but he's not 100% God. That's, that's wrong. That's present day Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. They think that God, Jesus had a creation point and that he's 100% man and that he's not 100% God. He became either God or something. And then there's the reverse. There's people that say he's 100% God, but not 100% man. That was more prevalent in the first century, second century of the Docetists and the Gnostics. Um, basically, they just thought all flesh is evil, so therefore God can never be flesh. And this is just, if you're a Greek philosopher student, um, platonic thought. Um, and so basically they said, since that's the case, Jesus could never be man ever. He just appeared to be man, but really he's 100% God, but not at all man. Wrong. He's both. Um, <clears throat> another one, this word doesn't matter, it's just called Apollinarianism. And basically that just means he's kind of half God, half man. So you have the half God part, which is his mind and his spirit, and the half man part, which is his body. And you just kind of stick the two halves together. Wrong. He's 100% of both. The next one is Nestorianism. And this just says when you take the, the natures, that's actually two natures. It's, we, we can't say that he's one person. He's actually two people. He's the God person and the man person. This is wrong, by the way. I call this the Smeagol Gollum view. You got two guys that are just kind of like in co two people that are in co conversation with us. Should we go down there? Yes, we should. You know, like, I don't know. First, first service had no idea who Lord of the Rings were, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, again, he's not two people kind of in conversation with himself, and he's not referring to himself in the plural. He's one person. Um, and the last one, again, this one doesn't matter. Mono, the, the terms don't matter. Monophytism. And that just means uh, whenever you put the 100% God and the 100% together, he didn't just stay 100% God and man. He actually became a third thing, just this new thing, monophytism the, in, in the Latin third thing is tertium quid if you are a study of history but that's not either he didn't become this third thing because he had to become that which he wanted to save he had to stay man he didn't become a third like weird kind of deal so that's a wrong view so any kind of any kind of misunderstanding of the fact that he's one person two natures god and man and those are 100 percent. any misunderstanding of that leads into heresy so all that church history has done has stated that 
And then whenever people come along and say those things that they're contrary to that, they say, that's wrong and we need to burn you. That's basically how it's gone down, except for the last 500 years. We've, we've, made, a sh- we've made a turn towards Christ's likeness and quit burning the heretics, which is good. This is good. Because um, accidentally, you could have been one. And, you know, anyway. So uh, today, um, we don't have like a, like a burning of heretics class here at Remedy. That's not, that's not our, like, hidden discipleship class that we keep from anybody. Um, it's not out in the public either. We don't have it. So uh, starting at verse 15 in Colossians 1, finally. So my, my point is this. All right, so what we've done so far is kind of understood historically who Christ is. And as we've understood historically who Christ is, we've seen that people have had wrong views of him. And we've tried to, as fast as we could, get some right understandings of who he is. So as we're going into this particular this ver- uh, s- section of Scripture, chapter 15, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And as he's writing, when he gets to verse 15, he goes into what's normally been known for the last 2,000 years as a Christ hymn, starting at verse 15 through 20. What he does is he takes more than likely a hymn at some particular time and writes it in. And what he's doing is just trying to put on display for them. I think this is very similar to the Philippians 2 thing. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's one in Philippians 2 as well, but we're doing... Uh, Colossians 1, because we've done Philippians 2 so many times, Um, some attributes of Jesus. He's trying to help us see some things about Christ. And remember, as we're looking at these things about Christ, the purpose of today and the purpose, I think, of Paul and the purpose that the Holy Spirit wants to happen is not that you would just know things about Jesus, but instead, as you know these things about Jesus, that would, it would cause your heart to be on fire, passionate, engaged, excited, in view of the, the greatness of Christ and what he's done, that you would want to live your life for him. So as we're going through these things, um, I'm inviting you to not be indifferent or apathetic, although I don't think that's possible. Try your best, even right now, pray that the Spirit would say, as I hear these things, even if I've heard them a thousand times, Lord, Come now and invade my heart and let me see this is unbelievable because we want to have a knowledge of Christ that leads us to being filled with all the fullness of God. So the first one is this, um, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but in verse 15 in the Christ hymn, Paul says he is, talking about Jesus, the image of the invisible God. So here's the first attribute that we see here is that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. John 4.24 says that God is invisible, he's spirit, and he could have, if he desired, remained forever invisible. It was not necessary for him to incarnate himself and become Jesus. He did it to save us, but a byproduct of that is that now he has an image of the invisible God. This Greek word image is the icon. And so Paul's maybe grasping at language for us to try to understand This image doesn't mean he's like kind of God. He's still fully God. Jesus is fully God. But now he is the primary way for us to see and know who God is. If you want to know who God is, then you and the way that he's designed it is invest all of your energies into studying the second person of the Trinity. The entry point into knowing the Trinity and knowing God is through the Son. So what we're seeing here is that he is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The way that if we're going to engage our senses into knowing God, it's through the second person of the Trinity. 
And that's basically what we're seeing here. Um, Colossians 2.9 says that Jesus, all the fullness of God, dwells in him bodily. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I know that you can't see Jesus fu- physically right now. I- I'm aware of that. One glorious day we will see him, and it will be unbelievable where the finite in some way tries to take on the infinite forever. Just an amazing thought. But we can see him in his word. He has, he has created a way that we are able to see him in his word. John 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known through Christ. So in the car- incarnation, God is now able to be seen and known in some kind of way. He's been able to see, be seen and known. And now everything that's possible that we can know can be seen of God, his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power. Everything that we can know is shown to us in Christ. Therefore, we should pursue, we should pursue Christ through God, through Christ in every possible way that we can. Because in his graciousness, God has, as it says here, made it available for us to see the invisible God in the in Christ. Like, that's an amazing gift. He, he did not have to do that. But as a gift, he made himself visible in Jesus. That's the first attribute. That, that's a huge gift. I mean, a huge gift, especially for, for us, because we just, we, you know inside of you, we all say, if I could just see him, then fill in the blank, right? And he's done that. In some ways for us, for the first century, visibly, for us through his word, and the promise for all of us is one day we'll see him forever. This is just a side note. I didn't say this in the first service, but I think this question sometimes comes into our head and Edwards answers the question. The question is, just feels like it's going to be boring in heaven. Like, when I eventually get tired of seeing kind of, there he is again, still looks the same. Um, Jonathan Edwards says this. Um, I'm going to rephrase it and probably brutalize it some, but this is basically what he says. The finite mind can never grow tired of taking in the infinite. He's infinite. So every day that we wake up, there will be new mercies that the infinite is able to give to us to increase our joy. Won't the joy ever run out? No, because he's infinite. There'll never be a time where we can't run out of new mercies and new joy in the infinite. That's what it means to be infinite. I think that's amazing. So no, you'll never get tired of God in heaven because he never runs out of new joys and new mercies to give to you every day. And they'll be visually seen in the person of Jesus. Extraordinary. Come on, come on, where are y'all? That's awesome, that's what I'm talking about. So, all right, the second half of verse 15 is the next one. In verse 15 it says, he's also the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, this is where we get into some heresy. This is where the Arians would say, oh, see, he's created. He's the firstborn, and you can't be born unless you've been created. Therefore, he is 100% man, but not 100% God. And that's where we find our, our, our heresies today. Um, well, let's also understand a couple things. This firstborn of all creation does not mean that he's created. Um, the best thing to do whenever you're looking at a verse that seems to be like, I don't understand that, the best thing... It's called hermeneutics. It just basically means the, st- the proper way to study the, the study of the Bible. It's back up and get the whole picture of the Bible if it's trying to tell you. John 1.1, 1, 1, which Ben read, said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're seeing in, in, in countless other texts 
that Jesus has been God. In order for you to be God, you have to eternally existed from the past always and the future, obviously. So when we read firstborn of all creation, we need to ask ourselves, what does that really mean? Because it's not saying that he was created. We know all over the, te- all over the Bible that he has, he's saying he's God. So what does this mean? Um, does it mean that it's just talking about the firstborn among men? No, because Mary didn't give birth to the very first person ever. Um, so what does it mean to say this? And this is what it means. When we're talking about the firstborn, it should be up here, number two, the relationship with God the Father is one of submission. A characteristic of Jesus is that the relationship between the first person and the second person of the Trinity is Jesus is submitting himself to the will of the Father. And it doesn't take away his eternality, living forever, and it doesn't take away his deity, which just means his divineness or his godness. He's not like less God, like second string God, junior varsity God, and God the Father's like varsity God. That's not what it means. Um, It's trying to teach us how to understand the relationship between the God, the Father, and God, the Son. So when it says he's the firstborn of all creation, it's for us to be able to understand better the relationship between God, the Father, and God, the Son. God, the Father, has a plan to redeem man. Jesus is going to submit himself completely to the will of the Father and go carry out that plan. And the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. And so what it's doing for us here is helping us understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So when you see verse, verses like we all know this, when John 3, 16 is at every football game, you know, out of context, just about John 3, colon 16, and no one knows what that means. That's not a Christian. So when you see that, that says, for God so loved, I'm for that if you want to do it. For God so loved the world, no, it's no one what it means. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave us, some versions will say only begotten son. Begotten just means, you know, like I have five children. We have begotten five children. Um, and so, when we're talking about the Son, Jesus being begotten by the Father, the way that they've talked about it in history is that they would say, Jesus is eternally begotten by the Father. So it's explaining the relationship between the two, and it's not diminishing at all the fact that he's God. Now, what does that mean for us? And we're looking at the characteristics of Jesus, and we're saying, okay, um, Jesus' relationship with God the Father is always one of submission. Um, I have to go to work Tuesday, Fudd. What does that mean? I've got school on Wednesday and a test. What does Jesus' relationship with with that mean? It means when we look at that, we say, Jesus has always submitted himself to the will of the Father. He's humbly being a servant, even though he's God. Therefore, as Christ followers, we would want to mimic that. We would want to say, I'll humbly submit myself to what the Lord wants in the same way Christ does. The The most accurate way I can reflect the character of Christ is to be like him. And I want to be submissive too. So I want to be loving too. I want to be a servant too. So when you're going to do whatever you're going to do this week, you would carry it with that same spirit of servanthood. The next one is this. Oh, this one's awesome. Um, Verse 16, For by him all things were created, and heaven on an earth. Notice, I mean, if, if, if there's ever a list that's going to try to name every single thing that's ever been created, it's right here. For by him all things were created, in, her, in earth and in heaven, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this means in Genesis 1.1, right there in the very beginning verse, when creation is starting to happen, Jesus was not just present, but he was actually the active person in creation creating, which is, we said last week, uh, 
in the Hebrew, we, can, we, we talked about how that's present. So Jesus created all things for himself. That's the key part here. This is the, that's the third one. Jesus created all things for himself. What did he create? He created heaven. He created earth. He created thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He created things visible, trees, oceans. He created things invisible, love, respect. He created every concept and every object or object that you can see. Everything that's ever been created, he's created them all. Why did he create them? Not only did he create them all, but he also created them for himself. Everything that's been created is for God. Everything that's been created is for God. And don't miss this. That means you, personally. You don't just think, oh yeah, he created the trees for God. No, he created you for himself. It took me a long time to know that. I I did not understand um, from a very young age. I went a long time in my life without knowing why I was put on earth. I knew God created me and, you know, this kind of brutal understanding, if you will, but not not in a deep way. I, I wish someone would have told me as a child, teenager, even early college student, that I was created by Jesus and for Jesus. I think that would have radically shaped the way I would have lived my life in the first 21 years. And here's the deal. Whatever age you are right now, you've been given a gift from the word, not from me, from the word to know why you were created. You, you, if anybody ever wonders or you have, you know, don't say it in some kind of like smart way. Like, I know why everybody's created. Like, what did I just do? So anyway, uh, it, it's helpful to know that. I think it's very helpful to know that. And engaging in conversations, there's always, why am I here? This is one of the, the, the biggest questions that people want to know. Why was I created? You've been given a gift, if this is the very first time you've even heard it, to know why you were created. You were created by God, and you were created just the way you are, exactly the way he wants you, for his glory. Everything, trees and oceans, scream out the glory of God. And that should be the same for us. You were created for him. Everything that you do should be for the glory of God. So, this third one, Jesus created all things for himself. That includes you as well. You were created for his glory. That sounds kind of like um, nebulous. That's not concrete enough. So let, let's put a little understanding of what that means. That means the uh, class that you're taking this particular semester, you were created for the glory of Jesus, which means the way that you study, you would obey Colossians 3, you would do your work as unto the Lord. You would study hard. You wouldn't procrastinate. You wouldn't put it off. When it's test time, you would obey the rules of not stealing um, or cheating. You would do all of your work to the glory of God. You were created. So in relationships, married or not married, you would say in Hebrews 13, the marriage bed should not be defiled. Therefore, I'm not going to invite people into the marriage bed that are not part of this marriage. And that's part of, that happens before you get married. You can invite people into the marriage bed through um, premarital sex or pornography or even after you're married through adultery or same thing, pornography or whatever. That means I, this, I was created for God. This marriage, this husband and wife 
um, bringing together, which is supposed to be reflecting Christ in the church, is for him. This marriage is for the glory of God. Therefore, everything God has to say about marriage, I want to accurately reflect that and give him glory by obeying everything he says. We could, we could apply that to every single situation. So when we say, you were created for the glory of God, it means in whatever situation you're in, you want to most accurately reflect what would be the most Christ-like thing to do. And I'm saying that intentionally because I'm not trying to say, you need to follow the rules. I mean, following the rules just isn't fun. And it just doesn't have to engage the heart. And this is not, (laughs) it's really, um, in my mind, not fun to follow rules. It's not. I would much rather do the things that please Jesus the most. And if that's following the rules, then you can call me a legalist. But I would rather, out of love, do what he wants not follow the rules and have ne- not necessarily any kind of heart engagement. So it's, it's obvious that some people are more drawn towards rules versus not, but the goal of being a Christian is not becoming a better rule follower. It's becoming a better lover of Jesus. Next one is in verse 17. Um, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Let's take that first phrase. He is before all things. This means that he is eternal. He is before all things. It comes, I think, a challenge for us to be able to start taking in the concept of eternality because we're not, and we never will be. Um, We're everlasting. The human is everlasting. We have a, a beginning point, and we live forever, either with God or not, but we're not eternal. Um, only God is eternal. So it's hard for us, I think, to, to fully take that in. But the main point that we're trying to understand here is this. Um, as we talk about the fact that God is eternal, we think on the fact that he's been, and I, and I covered this last week a little bit, the fact that he's always been in a perfect relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect love, perfect community, perfect admiration, perfect understanding of who he is and given and delighting in himself. And so since the fact that Jesus is eternal and that's what he's been doing from eternity past and will be doing from eternity future, um, when we look at that, then we should say that's what we should do. So when we say a characteristic is that Jesus is eternal, it one of the natural overflows of application for us then is that we would want to delight in Christ. Deli- I, would say, I should say it this way. Delight in God to the same way that he does. Find our delight in him. At his right hand are um, pleasures forevermore. The next one is this. Number five on the second part of 17. It says, uh, and in him all things hold together. This is remarkable. In Jesus, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 helps us understand that a little bit better. This is what it says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, which is kind of a restatement of verse 15 in Colossians 1. Then it says this, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, just think of it in just our, I'm not very scientific, so solar system. We have the sun and we have these nine planets revolving around and we have our little moons and then There's galaxies all around, and all of them are staying where they are, not falling into some kind of dark abyss, because Jesus, God the Son, is speaking and holding them up and sustaining them all just by saying, stay up there. That's amazing, right? He's upholding the world 
the galaxies, everything there is, by speaking. He, he's sustaining all things and holding them all together. He's, the power that he's doing this is through speech. That's, I mean, that's not like, it's not like he's got these huge muscles like Arnold. And he's like, I hold it up there forever. And it's not like that. It's less, um, he just said something. He just said something and it's holding it up there forever. So if he has, this is highlighting for us the vast, vast, vast power that he has. If he is upholding galaxies and galaxies and galaxies simply by speaking, if he's sustaining all those things, and you and I are infinitely smaller than galaxies, he's certainly capable of upholding us and sustaining us. And we're more important than galaxies. We're made in the image of God. And so if, as we see this, he sustains all things and holds them together. The obvious thing is that every breath you draw into your lungs is God himself, Jesus, sustaining you. Now, don't find that like, whoa, that's crazy. That overwhelms me. Instead, let that be something that you take comfort in, that he's keeping you every moment, and that he is, this is the most amazing part, God, I mean, the one that's doing all that is intricately involved in your life. He's that intimate. And so when you say, is God interested in me? Is God, you know, have time for me? Does God want to know who I am? Of course he does. He created you, and he's keeping you and sustaining you every single moment, and intricately involved in your life. Of course, of course he's involved in your life and wants to know you and wants you to know him. And we can't, if that's true, that's just not information that we can kind of be indifferent about or apathetic about. Ah, the God of the universe wants to know me. I was thinking of playing some Wii today. (laughs) What? That's not the right response to that. Um, Verse 18, verse 18, the next one is, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. One of the characteristics of God, of Jesus specifically, is that he is the head of the body. John Calvin says that all the life of the church flows from Christ. So all the life that Christians have flows out from Christ. Paul, as he's writing this, he's trying to help us see that Christ is our head. And if that we're believers, we're part of the church. Here's a a clue. If you are a Christian, it's not like a decision that you get to make whether you're part of the church. Eh, I don't really want to be part of the church. It doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, no questions asked. You don't have a choice. You're part of the church. You, you have to be a part of the bride. You can't say, well, I really, really love Jesus, but I kind of hate his wife. Um, you, you can't say that because you're part of it. You know, we wouldn't say that to people normally. I really like you. Can't stand your wife. Uh, maybe you would, but you shouldn't say that. That's not something that you should ever say ever. And you cannot be that indifferent towards the church. If you love Jesus, then that means you're part of the church and you have to care for the church. You have to be a part of it. So when we see Jesus is the head of the body of the church, that means that we are part of it. No questions asked. We don't have a choice. Ephesians 4.15 says that since we're part of the church, that we should speak the truth in love and that we are now, as part of the church, supposed to grow up into every way into the head, which is Christ. So there's a necessity, since Jesus is the head of the church, there's a necessity, a, a command, if you will. And again, I don't, 
like to just throw out commands too much because I feel like we're commands, no, get them away. Um, but there's a command, if you will, that says, you must now, as a, as a follower of Christ, part of the church, you must grow up into Christ. It's necessary that you become more Christ-like in this life. He, he, he isn't giving that out as a suggestion. Hey, become more like me. It's, you have to. You have to become more like Christ. Um, in Colossians 2, 18, right after this in the second chapter, he talks about what that looks like. He tells us that let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up. Basically, he kind of lists out this stuff. He's saying, don't let people tell you that you have to do it by following the rules. Instead, verse 19, hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished, knit together through all its joints and ligaments, finds a growth that is from God. The way that we grow is holding fast to the head. This doesn't negate our strivings. We still have to strive. So when we're talking about holding fast to the head, we still have to strive. That's why in Colossians 1.29, a verse between these two verses, it says in Colossians 1.29 that we are struggling, uh, striving, struggling with all of his energy that works powerfully within us. So as we hold fast to the head, we still have to strive. We still have to, um, and this is what I mean. I mean, we're saying it in this kind of language like, hold fast to the head and strive with all of his energy. You're like, what does that mean? I don't... We still live in everyday life. Like, whenever you leave, you're going to make real choices today. You're going to decide to do this, not decide to do this. You're going to... I firmly believe that we're all making choices every day in life, walking through life. Do I, should I do that? Should I not? That's a sinful thing. I shouldn't or shouldn't. You have to make these decisions. And so since we're in the real life where we make real decisions and it has to be things that either glorify God or would be a sin that we would later repent of, we have to strive with all of his energy, holding fast to the head, that when we have these choices, this real decision, that we say, God, I want to strive here. I want to give you glory. I want to hold fast. I want to grow up into you. And so this thing right here, whether I should do it or not, I want you to I know that I shouldn't, but I also want you to fill me with the Spirit and give me the power to say no to it or give me the power to avoid it or if this is the right thing, give me the power to do the right thing and, and just not be passive and, and not do the right thing. So the goal here, again, is not rules, but a heart that wants to follow and reflect what most accurately gives Jesus glory. And so here when we see that we are, a part, he is the head of the body of the church, it's just highlighting for us again the absolute necessity that we should pray for God to give us desires, pray for God to help us have energy to strive, and pray that he would grow us up into Christ-likeness. He, he prays this very prayer um, in John 17, right before he goes to the cross, where he says, sanctify them by your word, your word is truth. He wants you to be sanctified, holy, more Christ-like. And so when he tells us he's the church, the head of the church, it's just showing you to grow and become more like him. Um, the next one is in verse 18, where he says, uh, he's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the beginning, because he is the firstborn from the dead. Um, what we're going to do is kind of work backwards to understand this. When we talk about the firstborn from the dead, it doesn't mean that he's the first person to ever be raised from the dead. Um, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead right after he was raised from the dead. So when we talk about the firstborn from the dead, it doesn't mean the first person ever to be raised from the dead. Instead, when we say the first, uh, firstborn from the dead, we say, of all the people that have ever been raised from the dead, which one seems to be the most important? <laughs> Jesus. Because Jesus is being raised from the dead is where all of us find forgiveness of sins. 
And so the reason why he's the firstborn, it just means he's the most important person that's ever been raised from the dead. And because of that, then, he is the beginning. He's the first one so that everything he might be preeminent. This word preeminent just means supreme first place. Like there's no question about it. No one is ever going to be better ever. He's preeminent, supreme first place. Um, and this is where you could, you know, you could insert the obvious sports illustration of Michael Jordan or Jadavian Clowney or whoever, right? The best ever. Some of you are like, who's Clowney? He's from Rock Hill. He plays for the Gamecocks. Um, so anyway, uh, like you can insert that and you can say, Michael Jordan is arguably the best ever. He's the supreme first place ever. No one will ever, you, don't talk to me about LeBron or don't talk to me about Kobe. Don't talk to me about whoever. MJ's the best ever. But here's the problem. Let's say MJ had to play one-on-one right now with LeBron. Who would win? LeBron would destroy him, right? Because MJ's like 75 years old now or whatever. Like he can't, he, he probably can, I can probably jump higher than MJ now, right? Uh, my point is this, is any ubiquitous, obvious sports illustration you want to insert here about um, the, what the supreme first place means, because they are finite humans, they are going to degrade and fall down. And one day somebody, they might not earn as many points or as many awards or whatever, but like somebody can beat them one day because they're going to age and get older. That's just, so all illustrations fail here to understand we're talking about Jesus. So if you put Jesus and say he's the supreme, preeminent first place, that's never going to change ever. There's not like some star in the corner that's eventually going to come out and beat him one day at being God. That's not even possible. He is preeminent first place, never going to change. That's, that's not up for debate ever, which means he should be supreme first place in your heart. There should not be any competition in your heart with Jesus. It shouldn't be Jesus and my spouse, Jesus and my kids, Jesus and my work. There should be no battle for supreme first place in your heart. He rules and reigns over it. That's the application for this. When we talk about the fact that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. The resurrection has ensured, since we all find our understanding of who we are because of the resurrection, and he has to be preeminent in everything, especially in our hearts. The next one is this. We're going to go through this one decently fast. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased, um, was pleased to dwell. This is a restatement, or this will be restated again, I should say, in Colossians 2.9. Um, He's going to say the same thing. It's a little bit different than the first one. The first one, we kind of highlighted the fact that we can see Jesus. Um, This one, saying that Jesus is 100% God and he lived on earth. And because he was 100% God, he was also completely righteous. The only thing I want to say about this one, about him being completely righteous, is this. Because God's righteous, because Jesus was righteous and was God, you can trust that you will be forever forgiven. Meaning this. Because he's 100% righteous and 100% God, never sinned, Whenever that righteousness is given to us, whenever we say, God, I confess my sin. I trust you for my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for me. Would you please forgive me? Come into my life. What happens is there's righteousness that's then counted to us. That righteousness that's counted to us is the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, he has to be 100% God, completely righteous. If, if he was not God, the righteousness that would count to us would be some kind of imperfect righteousness. 
and then we're all going to hell. So it has to be that he's 100% God and the righteousness that he imports into us is 100% righteous. So the, the thing that we talk about here is just that we're highlighting the fact that he has completely forgiven you. There's not anything outlined. All you know now is mercy from God when you confess your sin and repent and trust Christ. Every sin ever that you've ever committed and will commit is completely forgiven and counted now hidden in Christ. That is extraordinary news. For a sinner like me, amazing news. I, I can't comprehend myself being apathetic or indifferent towards that. This is the last one, and this is my favorite one. So, all right, let's all, don't stand up, but pretend you're standing up and you're loosening yourself up because this is the best one. We all need to revive ourselves for this one. All right, this is the best one, I think. Well, they're all awesome, but this is my favorite. So verse 20, it says, so all the fullness of God was dwelled in him. And then it says in verse 20, and through Jesus, he was pleased to reconcile all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross. So the last one is this, a characteristic of Jesus that he is the reconciler of all things. All things. When we hear that, we're like, what does he mean by all things? Does he mean the earth and everything? Or is he just talking about people? Like all the, because we don't call people things. We call them people. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's everything. We've talked about this before when we talk about the gospel being uh, not just that he's saving man, but that all of creation, when Adam sinned, all of creation's now been groaning. That's why we have cancer. That's why we have earthquakes. That why, that's why we have all these things. And all of creation has been groaning, wanting to one day be reconciled. And so right here, he's talking about all of creation being reconciled and human hearts that are sinful are being reconciled and brought back to God. Now experiencing peace with God. All, how's that happening? How are we experiencing peace? It says right there, by making peace by the blood of his cross. By the blood of his cross. This was who we are before God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3 says this, that every person that's ever existed before Christ was dead in their trespasses and they once followed the prince of the power of the air. That means they once followed Satan. Everybody did that before they came to know Christ. And if you are still not a Christian, you still do that. And it says, um, among whom we all once lived doing that, following the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now you read that and you say, (laughs) that is awful. That sounds so terrible. I didn't want to come here and you depress me. Here's the thing. The the other side of that, like verse 4 says, but God, biggest but in the Bible, like the rest of it is amazing, amazing, amazing news. And to be able to understand that, you have to understand how bad it is first. And so then you have how extraordinarily amazing this gospel, which is that God reconciles us through faith. And so what he's done then is because that was our condition beforehand, Christ said, I'm going to go now and reconcile all of man and all of earth, all back to God. I'm going to do it by going to the cross. All of his, God's righteous anger will be poured on Christ. And now all we'll ever receive is forgiveness. We've been reconciled. The cross has reconciled us back to God. And now we can enjoy our relationship with God forever, forever. And here's the thing. If you don't see this, 
this message of reconciliation back to God as the most precious, beautiful thing in the world, if you are just indifferent to that and enjoying your relationship with God, you most likely have not seen it. It means that in some way you have either A, know you're not a Christian and are willingly walking away, or B, somehow fooled yourself into some way of of thinking that you are just because you attend church. But this message is not something that we can be apathetic towards. When this message comes and the beautiful reality of we were once on a pathway towards hell and now that's completely erased, not by any work of us, but by sheer mercy and grace that he would take us off that path and direct us towards being reconciled to God forever. And now we never experience wrath and we only experience love by the only person that knows how to love us the best, First John 4, 7, God is love. The only right response is, I can't believe that. That's the best message I've ever heard. That's the most extraordinary news ever. All I want to do is live my entire life for him. God, captivate my heart daily with that truth so that I would preach that message to myself and most accurately reflect the, the most passionate heart towards you that I can. We would never just find ourselves indifferent to that. And if we do, I'm not sure that we've understood it. And I'm not trying to discount for moments of, you know, the roller coaster. I understand that we have, the Bible speaks to those things. But the overall trajectory of our lives is an upward one towards knowing Christ, towards enjoying Christ. This is scriptural. Matthew 13, 44 says... The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and, so he, and covered up. So this man, he's walking around. He, he's digging down in a field. Maybe it's not even his. It's actually not. And so he sees what represents as a parable. What is the kingdom of heaven? This is forgiveness forever to know God. And it says, in his joy. It doesn't say, well, you know, he figured out heaven. So he's got to go, you know, obviously go to heaven. Not hell, where it's hot and terrible. It says, in his joy, he goes and it says he sells everything he has. How much does that field cost? It costs everything I have. I'm going to sell everything I have so that I can come back and I can buy this field. That's what it says in Matthew 13, 44. Representing for us that whenever we think on this beautiful relationship with Christ, that we must in the same way be willing to abandon all that we have that captivates our hearts away from Christ and say, I don't want any of that stuff. All I want is Christ. To be reconciled to Christ should be our highest joy ever. So unbeliever, pray right now that you would be reconciled. Trust what he's done for you and say, yes, Lord, reconcile me. I want to be forgiven. Believer, pray that it would be your highest joy ever increasingly until you go to be with him in glory. We have been reconciled to him. One, one commentator, as he's talking about this miracle, which is, the technical term is the hypostatic union. When we talk about this one person um, becoming 100% God and 100% man, Christ, this, this miracle of joining together of who he is, he says that this miracle is far more amazing than even the resurrection or even the creation of the universe The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God would become a man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God 
could finally become one with finite man. God comes down and becomes one with us. He said this will forever remain for eternity the most profound miracle and greatest mystery in all the universe. He did it to reconcile us up to him. This is astounding. I want to close with this. This is a, you may know this if you listen, you've been listening to the Zion CD by Hillsong. This song's just been exploding. I mean, just like sometimes I'll be driving and the words will come in. My eyes will start crying and so clear I got to like pull over or I'm going to wreck. It's so good. Listen to this. This is talking about Christ. It says, who loved me through my rebel way? Who chose to carry all my shame? Who breathes in me with endless life? The King of glory, Jesus Christ. Who lifts the poor and heals the blind? Who trampled death for all mankind? Who stands for all with arms stretched wide? My King forever, Jesus Christ. What beautiful words. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the mediator between God and man, the Lord and God. He is our King forever. And He's deserving of our lives and our worship. The way we structure our services here is one song to prepare us. We pray that the Lord would speak through His Word. And then we have space here with three or four songs so that we can reflect back and respond back appropriately to what we've heard. And that's the case here. So however the Holy Spirit's leading you right now, as you reflect on your King forever, Jesus Christ, I want you to appropriately worship Him however the Spirit's leading. As you hear this message about the King forever, Jesus Christ, if you don't know Him, if you would say, what you've said is not what I've heard. I've heard rules. I've heard you got to get in line. And if you don't, you go into hell. And that's, it's just all, ah! I've never heard love and mercy and grace and the astounding message that I was on a pathway and that he willingly went to the cross and just lavished love riches upon me forever that I can be forgiven forever and now be reconciled and have a personal relationship with God forever. And he loves me more intricately than I've ever known and is more intricately involved in my life than I could ever conceive. That's not what I've heard. It's just always been, he's mad at you. You better get in shape. Then trust him this morning. Come to know him this morning. Believe. I, I, would, I would count it as my highest privilege to be able to talk to you today on how to become a believer. Find me during the worship. I'll be right back there in the corner. Come and talk to me. I would love to be able to tell you about Jesus and how you can cross over from death to life. But whatever he's leading, and we go into our time of worship, here's the thing for Christians. Um, I am confident of this, that as we go into our time of worship, the way that you can most accurately reflect what he's done for you would think, what am I going to worship like in heaven? I mean, how expressive and passionate will I worship Jesus in heaven? What will that be like? Hands in my pocket, sitting down, thinking about other stuff? Or I mean, will I be in the moment? I'm pretty sure that he wants you to worship him whenever you have these corporate gatherings in any situation, in any church. 
as much like that as possible. So as the Holy Spirit's leading, I'm not saying like go crazy. I'm saying as the Holy Spirit's leading, worship that way that he's wired you. And if you don't know Christ, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be in the back. I'm gonna pray and Ben will lead us in a time of worship. Let's pray together. Dear King of glory, Jesus Christ, who rescued us in our rebel ways, open arms accepts us because of your blood shed on the cross and reconciled us back to you. Dear Jesus, we love you. Forgive us. Forgive us of indifference. Forgive us of apathy. May it never be that this is the case of us. I pray that as we've heard knowledge about you, that it would drive us to know you more deeply and more intimately. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. We love you, Lord. Be with us now as we worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.